Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. Hello, Millennium listeners. It's Alex coming in for a really special interview today with a gentleman I've gotten to know personally over the last few weeks who's doing some really exciting stuff in a space that's pretty new to a lot of people, but definitely going to be a topic that for our podcast series, we, we've not covered before. So I'm really excited to introduce this um, this kind of world for our listeners as it relates to our podcast series, because this is something that uh, I think everyone is going to find really interesting and is going to be in, in, intrigued with. And has probably heard some stuff about this particular, I, I would say, I guess, industry or this particular part of the technology world. And we've got a great guy who I'm going to introduce to to kind of bring everything together, to talk about what he's doing, to talk about the space and um, to give people an idea of what's going on inside the world of crypto and decentralized finance and all sorts of topics that are getting more mainstream every single day. That leads me to our interviewee today, which is a gentleman by the name of Howard Krieger. Howard, like, like myself, is a fellow New Jerseyan, doesn't live too far from me in northern New Jersey. Howard has had a very interesting life and background and career in financial services, which makes me really even more excited to talk about him because he to, to talk to him because he comes from a world of you know what people would think of as traditional finance and kind of traditional banking and all sorts of things that we're we're used to dealing with and, and used to learning about but he has ventured off a few years ago into the world of blockchain and decentralized finance and he runs an organization called on federal reserve which is the chief executive officer of which we're going to dive into all those particular topics and i'm hoping the aim here is is not just for you to learn about howard which is definitely important as you know in all the podcast interviews that i like to do i want to figure out how howard you know, kind of pieced his life together and how he got to this point and what decisions he made that led him to start a company in this particular market. I think, as you can tell from all the interviews we do, it's a, kind of important to see how he got to where he did, which I think in this particular interview, you guys are going to find really interesting. And also, we're going to talk about his particular organization, which is on Federal Reserve. And then we're going to talk about decentralized finance in general, because that's a word that or that's a term that's getting more and more attention each and every day. And we're going to talk about what that means and and we're going to talk about what the kind of future looks like as it relates to this particular world. But um, I'd like to say, because Howard's been patiently waiting to say hello, Howard, welcome officially to the Millennium Alliance podcast series. We are thrilled to have you, and um, I couldn't be more excited to talk to you. That's right. Thank you, Alex, for having me. Of course, maybe we'll, maybe you and I will be in person next year. We'll do a round two to this. I'd love that. Um, in, uh, at, the, at the Ritz Diner in Livingston. Maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll, head, out, we'll head out over there. So. Yeah. Before we get into the, the talk about decentralized finance and we talk about crypto and, and we talk specifically about unfederal reserve, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background. So as I was alluding to before, you're a traditional finance guy. You've worked for some of the world's best organizations, including just to name a few, KPMG, Wells Fargo, HSBC. So obviously it takes a certain type of, I guess, brain to to not only be in that world, but to survive and be successful in that world, which based upon your resume, you, you've been extremely successful. So I guess um, for our listeners, if you want to just kind of take them through a little bit of your journey, where you grew up, a little bit about just kind of your personal background, and then what led you into the kind of finance industry and the part of the finance industry before you started on federal, how, you know, kind of give, give, give our listeners a little bit of insight into your journey. Sure, Alex. And again, thanks for the opportunity. You know, I, I grew up, like you mentioned, in, in central Jersey, in, in Berkeley Heights, which is a home to uh, Murray Hill, where Bell Labs is. My father was lead QA tester for Unix, one of the first people as part of the Unix team. And, you know, I, I tried to describe it like this. You know, growing up, you'd go to Toys R Us and they had the video games. And if you remember, if you wanted a video game at Toys R Us, you had to go get the little slip of paper and then you'd pay and bring it yes. to the front. Yes, right? I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would go at, like every once in a while, my mom had to go get birthday presents for somebody and I'd always want the video games. And, you know, we, were, we really didn't have the budget for it. So, you know, we'd go home and, and my dad would be like, why are you buying video games? He's like, just make them. And so uh, during the week, I think library day in elementary school was either Thursday or Friday. They'd have like Nintendo Power Magazine, which is like a short kind of flip through of all the cheats and stuff. But the back was always like a basic program. And, uh, you know, Saturday mornings, my sister, my older sister and I would be downstairs with our TRS-80 computer hooked up to a 
black and white monitor and we would literally read lines of code to each other. And like normal kids are playing sports and stuff. And me and my sister are like programming our own video games. And by lunch, you know, we'd have like a dot bouncing on the screen or something. Uh, <laughs> but we were so excited, you know, like when it worked, it was great. And I grew up in this household. But what was interesting was, you know, my father was the son of a butcher. And my grandfather, like when you talk about toiling away, you know, the big hunks of meat, his own shop, he was his own businessman. And my, my, so my father grew up with his father being like, do something different. Don't do what I do. Do something better. Do something different. And my father, God bless, was like, you do the same thing, Hal. You know, just, just do your own thing. Don't, don't necessarily follow on what I'm doing. Sure. And, you know, it just so happened that by the time I get to college, I tried my hand at like accounting and I liked economics, but I felt like a finance background would be more practical. And, and you, uh, stayed, and you stayed in Jersey for college, right? You're a Rutgers grad? Rutgers for my MBA, but undergrad was uh, James Madison in oh, Virginia. Okay. okay, cool. And so, and that was kind of on a whim where one of my friends had that magazine on their coffee table and, and they were like, what college are you applying to? And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, okay, well, this one looks good. So uh, and it, was, it was tremendous. You know, I have to say that, you know, regardless of anyone's kind of spiritual background, and I totally respect everyone's viewpoint on this. My life's truly been blessed, whether, you know, there is some kind of divine hand kind of guiding a lot of what's going on or just setting the stage mm -hmm. or allowing me to kind of maximize my potential without actually interfering. There's no way I could have gotten, I don't feel like I could have gotten here just by like picking a path and sticking to it. Sure. You know, as, my, as my grandmother said, you know, man plans and God laughs. So <laughs> I like that. So you get to, so you get to, J, you get to JMU and you, you were saying that you, before I just interjected, got, got your undergrad wrong. You, you were saying that you were trying your hand in accounting and in, in, in finance. Well, accounting, economics, I think I had Russian lit and psychology in there too. But the reason why finance stuck, it, it, you know, it's not the most endearing thing, but I needed credits to graduate a finance degree. You didn't have to take Friday classes and I could take an, I can intern. And if I interned and wrote a case study, those are two separate classes at the time. And so I could, you know, in a summer, basically nail six credit hours, but I needed an internship. And then I mm -hmm. needed to write and perform a case study. And I had a great professor. I've never mentioned him in any of these interviews. His name was Chip Rusher. And, and Chip was uh, like, a, he, he was from the South and he was, he was definitely of that ilk. But he loved everything Wall Street. He would take a group of kids up to New York and do everything. And he said to me as my sponsor, he's like, you get an internship. I'll help you put together the case study and you'll have enough credits to graduate. And I remember cutting it so close that I walked, right? You know, like, you know, when you get the degree, you, yep. you do the thing. I remember literally walking, getting a degree, not knowing if I had qualified and walking by one of my professors and being like, hey, did I you know, pass this stats class. He's like, yeah, you pass. And I was like, woohoo, you know, I'm off stage and, and I'm celebrating that I, <laughs> that I graduated because I cut it that close. But the internship was interesting. So schools in Virginia, this was back kind of the internet was kind of nascent. You literally had to apply for jobs in, in person or by mail. And so spring break junior year, I put on my, my best suit. My mom and I go down to Wall Street. She had worked as a bookkeeper in one of the shops where the World Trade Center had been before the World Trade Center was even built. So she knew the area. She's from New York. And uh, we would literally walk into these buildings, look at the big directory and look at the name of a company like World Financial Corp. Mm -hmm. And my mom's like, that one looks good. Maybe they need an intern. And I would, you know, if security would let you go in you know, this pre 9-11, obviously, you know, I'd go up to the floor, I would talk to the, the secretary at the front and be like, hey, I'm interested in an internship. And I must have done it about a dozen times. And I got the crap kicked out of me. You, you know, it's New York, right? Like, yeah, I'm walking in with a resume and a suit. And they're like, no one will see you. <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was humbling. But I, I also constantly remind myself that this kind of came from my dad too, is that it's very hard to do something new. You, you know, you could be unique and you could be inventive, but your experience is probably consistent with something someone else has gone through a number of times. I, I personally think you just kind of have to approach it with the mindset of, look, if you, if you don't ask, 
you're not going to get the shot. Mm -hmm. If you go in there with good intentions, right? I wasn't going in there to rob the place. I was going in there to be free labor. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so if my inventory was in the right space, how they reacted, I have no control over. Sure. And so I went door to door. I'd actually gotten a couple of offers. So Goldman and Barclays, I remember on the spot, offered me internships, which was huge from JMU. You know, I wasn't coming from Harvard or something, sure. right? Just, but but kind they appreciate what, what kind of internships did they offer you? For Goldman, it was an international equities position. I just randomly went to the floor in the building. And so I must have ended up in an equity research, did maybe international. Did any part of, 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 of Wall Street or banking in general, was it around the time that you were doing this, to most people, it, it, it could have been common knowledge that like, if you work on Wall Street or you work in this sector, you're going to make a lot of money and this is a good place to be if you work hard. Was that, was that part of the lore to go down to Wall Street or was it just kind of, what, what was the main motiv motivating factor that you, you wanted to be in that world? My understanding was super rudimentary. Like in my mind, you know, because again, I was a new finance student by my junior year. Sure. In my mind, you know, I'd seen Wall Street with, uh, you know, Charlie Sheen and stuff, mm -hmm. and obviously knew from Hollywood and experience. And, and obviously, coming from North Jersey, if you're going to do finance, it, it's kind of like being in theater and, and moving to New York so that you can audition for the Broadway shows. Got it. Got it. And it was that where clearly you could be successful anywhere. And in fact, the, the, the path might have been easier had I had gone to D.C. from JMU simply because it was like an hour away. Mm -hmm. But I was home on spring break. My mom knew the area. I figured the density. I just had a shot of pegging in somewhere. The visualization of this is the finance person I wanted to be. I wanted to be the person who's taken the path or the subway you know, or live in the friend's life. So yeah. I think, I think it was, I think it was that, that drew me to wall street more than anything. Cool. So you get, you, uh, was it Barclays and Goldman? You get some internship offers, which is really cool. Cause you wouldn't have gotten those offers or those opportunities okay. if you didn't actually show up. So you had an international, was it international equity internship? And then Barclays offered you the, what, what kind of internship? Well, those two offered me equity internships. But during the tour, I asked where I would work. And the guy was like, okay, you'd start in this cube. And then after a couple of years, you move to this cube. And then by mm -hmm. this time, you move to this cube by the window. And I was like, okay, uh, you know, I hadn't thought that's what I was really signing up for. But that's the business. One of the places I, I had gone into was a venture capital firm, a boutique and venture capital firm that was actually renting space from someone on one of the floors. And these guys were sitting on the floor around a polycom and they had a dry erase board and one guy was talking and they're telling me to like, you know, uh, you know, shush, shush. And, uh, you know, they were doing their, their thing. And uh, I was just kind of like listening to them chat and talk and make deals. And when they hung up the phone, they were like, hey, go next door and talk to the president of the company. And it, it was just somebody in, in a rented office. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were like, come in. We'll pay you money. You'll start looking at prospectuses and deal flow, and you'll just kind of help around the office. And uh, that job just seems so much more exciting to be in venture capital and investment banking than being an equity analyst with a three-year path moving from this little cube to this big cube. So you, so so I, you, you, I, yeah. you went that route, which is interesting because I, I talk a lot about when I go back to my alma mater and I talk to students my advice is in terms of what they should be looking for in terms of post undergraduate life, if they're not going to go and further their education. I talk to them a lot about how important experiences are and how hard it is sometimes when you're could get a job with a company with a brand name, such as Barclays or Goldman Sachs. It's hard not to want those jobs because the brand notoriety is, is, is so real. And, you know, people just, they, they naturally are impressed if you say you work for, a big institution like or a big brand, whether it be, you know, Disney or if you worked at Walt for Walmart or if you worked for Apple or Goldman Sachs, just to, just True. just as an example. So I I can imagine that was it automatic that you were you were gonna turn those internships down and, and, and jump on with this venture capital firm? Did you know that was the right thing or was it a tough decision to do that? Well it was all in this kind of one or two day window where I'd gone and I'd done the tour and I'd had the conversations. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was the fact that even though it was a small boutique investment banking firm, right, 
that they were very upfront about the fact that I would immediately be contributing as part of a team. And, you know, I'm a, I'm an Eagle Scout. So I'd been in programs my whole life in athletics where like, you know, you're part of a team. Personally, I want to be in a spot where I can be an immediate contributor and where also I know I'm going to get attention and, and get the most out of it. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, in hindsight being 2020, about having to carry boxes of copy paper up and down Broadway, you know, getting coffee, going through 13D filings, reading prospectuses. I, I know the Goldman internship would not have had me do those types of tasks, mm-hmm. but I got that broader experience of what is deal flow? How are deals constructed? And, and then I think also it ties back to what I said earlier about the internship where I needed to do a case study and it was going to be a lot easier to do a case study if I was in the trenches of the business, as opposed to doing a case study coming from the experience of reading a bunch of inter, you know, publicly traded European gas sure. company reports. So I think that all kind of fed into the mix, but, but really the, the ability of, of being something, being part of something entrepreneurial was definitely more exciting than being part of an institution, even with the brand. And then, so you graduate from JMU. Then you and, and your first move or your first stop after JMU was what? So it was this venture capital firm, uh, Angel Partners, Apogee Partners. They would send me deals and stuff while I was you so know, you doing my career. You had a job not only in school, but what most people really want before they graduate is you had a guaranteed job when you left school. That's right. That's right. And you know, it wasn't the you know the highest paying. It wasn't the name brand. But it was something where I knew where I, I had a paycheck coming from. I could, you know, get the place in Hoboken ready for when I graduate and, sure. and start living that whole life. And it went well, but then the telecom burst, uh, uh, bubble burst. Uh, you know, 1998, there was deregulation and there was this kind of run up. And it was really my first experience of seeing this, this sort of, you know, now I know it as FOMO. Uh, fear of missing out. You know, I didn't know the term FOMO until a couple of months ago. So fear of missing out. So you had this big rush into the telecom space, which my venture capital firm was firmly ensconced in. And when that deregulation kind of started to unwind, that collapse shut down this VC firm. And now I'm like, oh crap, now what am I going to, what am I going to do now? You know, I, like, this is what I was banking on my career being is, is being in this VC firm. Sure. Uh, and so I ended up uh, getting a job with uh, what was NUI Corporation, a diversified natural gas company in its capital markets group. So, so the, think about accounting. Within the, the accounting function, you have to manage your financing. So, so if, if you're a gas company, you have to pay for the pipes in the ground. You got to pay mm-hmm. for the gas. And so I started with this diversified natural gas company which at the time was nicknamed Little Enron, when that was a really endearing, awesome thing to be Mm -hmm. compared to, right? Everybody loved diversified natural gas. And I was doing everything from structuring swaps on their their large fixed income positions. I was negotiating lines of credit. And so here I am in my early 20s, and I'm the most sophisticated capital markets Wall Street guy in this big (laughs) company. And I'm there about a month, the, the CEO, the CFO, the controller, my boss and me all go into the CEO's office. He was a member of the Keene family, you know, the, the governor uh, at the sure. town of Jersey was his nephew. Sure. And he his, said, his look, son, yeah. his son was running in my district in uh, Westfield. Oh, is that right? Yeah. 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 yeah to- for, for, like uh, a- for the, for that, for that congressional seat. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, legend, Jersey family, right? I and mean, those guys are woven into the fabric of Jersey for sure. And so he says, look, I don't want the, the Star Ledger, the local paper to come out and say that we have this relationship with Enron. You have to unwind it. And the way it works without getting too much into the sausage making, you can imagine they have to buy gas from someone. And there's this complex web of structured finance between all the energy companies on the planet, basically. I mean, everybody, everything is interwoven. I I don't care what you hear on TV and see in the news about this country or that country or this company or that company. 
at the end of the day, the gas that lights your stove is the same type of gas that's lighting the stove in a different part of the country and, and on the continent. Sure. And so the way it worked out on that day, if somebody stopped everything and, and looked at who owed who what, we had this large position open against Enron. Now, if it would have ran its course, we would have gotten the gas. This big liability would have just disappeared and it would have been nothing. But my boss was like, I don't want anything to do with Enron. Unwind it. And so we, you know, you're a good soldier. You do what you're told. We unwound this position. But besides the fact that we were already called like little Enron and we were in this big diversified business of natural gas and, and copy machines and telephones, this big burden of unwinding the Enron thing completely got on Moody's radar and Moody's is a credit rating agency and they downgraded our company stock like five notches in a couple of months. And you, you can't do that. You know, you can't mm -hmm. have a gas company. And so all of a sudden was doing well. And then this occurred and I had to go find, okay, what's my next stop going to be, right? The, the, the pickup from NUI on the crypto path, the, the natural gas company is I never said no. If someone said, can you value a swap? I did the research as to what the elements of a swap were. I opened sure. up a spreadsheet and I wrote down all the different players and then I built those models, right? And then I, and I asked, I find experts, find people that know what they're doing, that you can trust, that it won't kind of circle back that, hey, how is kind of a foreigner in this space. But I got news for you. Nobody knows how to do something until they learn how to do it and then they do it. Mm -hmm. And that philosophy of approaching every organization almost as if they're a teaching hospital. And what do they do in teaching hospitals? They show you how to do something. They stand with you as, they, as you do it. And then you have to teach it. And once you've gotten to the point that you can teach a skill, you own it. It's yours. And so learn, do with a friend, and then teach are critical elements in all these things. And so when I went to Charlotte in, into consumer banking, HSBC was migrating all this stuff around the country and they needed someone to build their consumer lending model, like the model to value all the mortgages that were coming through HSBC. I think they had maybe a 40 or $60 billion pipeline. And I didn't know anything about mortgages, except it was a thing my dad had burned in the barbecue, like when he paid it off. <laughs> uh, right. So I, you know, you go and you ask and it's like, Oh, it's a debt with a call option. Okay. And over the course of three years, by talking to everybody in the bank that touched mortgages and sitting into the meetings, even with even just being fascinated with other people's day to day, like understanding why people do what they do for a living, especially the ones that love what they do, it is just invigorating. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so from there, I learned how to build and structure models, working with project management, working with IT people and working with engineers and working with capital markets, working with accounting, those mindsets are totally different. And they all have to triangulate and reach a, a central conclusion. So the capital markets guy that wants to buy everything at a 104, right, pay a premium for everything because they're getting comped on volume. And the risk person that thinks the safest loan you do is the one you don't do. And the controller who's responsible for providing metrics that are, are in the public domain, but maybe slightly different language than the metrics that are used internally, getting the information from the systems into that. And so, you know, I uh, reached out to a guy named Frank Fabazi who had written this Bible on structured finance, had some back and forth with him, with some people that worked with him, just to make sure that my mindset was, was becoming expert in valuation and pricing. And then also, you know, getting into actually developing product. The challenge was, is HSBC was the largest subprime mortgage provider, gosh, around the mid 2000s. And, and I remember being there. I remember presenting, I was doing quite a bit of public speaking at the time, and I remember presenting at a conference on securitization the day the Wall Street Journal reported that my parent company had just put up a billion dollar loss reserve at a time where that did not happen. You know, they put up a billion dollar loss reserve against residential mortgages and the U.S. housing market was still on fire. And they're like, why? And I remember it was about seven o'clock in the morning on a Friday we were what year, running our, what year was this? 
it was it, it had to be 2005, 2006. Okay. It was it was before the public was really aware of the impending tsunami, uh, because there were so many prepayments. Everybody was refinancing their home that if you had a bad loan, you could get a call from a rep saying, oh, you can't pay? How about I refinance you? That'll buy you a month and and what have you. And so it was about seven o'clock in the morning. The CFO had had come by to uh, check on some pricing we were doing for some loan sales. And I had built the model in such a way that you could tell where the money was coming from. Like, how are we making money on this mortgage? And it was all on prepayment penalties. And he's like, are you telling me half of our net income, like half of our profit is coming from people prepaying? What if people stop prepaying? And I was like, uh, I'm just working with risk. <laughs> risk tells me people are prepaying. This is what the numbers say. And he disappeared. And not for nothing, maybe four months, six months later, him, the CEO and the COO, they grabbed that golden parachute. They were offered to run the entire bank. And instead we were like, no, we're, we're good. and everyone thought it was mysterious but then the dominoes you know then it made sense yeah yeah the reserve came on the secondary market went away and it was really interesting to see that value is a function of the amount of people interested in something and you're seeing it now in crypto right seeing that the value of crypto is ever increasing and it's really a function largely a function of not attrition meaning not people leaving the space. It is people maybe exiting, but the amount of people entering is, is like four or five times. And so there's, there, I don't want to call it an illusion, but it certainly presents as if, man, this stuff is worth so much more every day. Mm-hmm. But it's really, in, in my humble estimation, it's a function of more people getting engaged at a price point that they're comfortable participating, really inflating the market. Well, let's get into the nuts and bolts of crypto and decentralized finance. I guess in your own words, how would you describe decentralized finance? So in my words, decentralized finance is any financial system where key elements of underwriting, uh, meaning, you know, assessing the creditworthiness, uh, of of borrower, the structuring, the payments. Anytime you take the flow of information, and money is is a form of information, because money is a store of value, and value is kind of society's reflection of uh, what your work was worth. So if you perform work, and that can be anything, uh, you can't carry it around with you. Uh, you, you, you know, and some work fades, right? Like if I'm a farmer, the work, you, you know, degrades. So, so money is a store of value for work performed. And anytime you could take the transfer of value or information and take it out of a centralized authority and, and have it be decentralized, to me, that's, that is what decentralized finance is. How do you think this will and can change the traditional banking space? Well, I think the definition of money is changing before our eyes. And it has been for a while. Alex, have you ever used uh, airline miles to buy anything? Did a couple day- I did a couple days ago. You did? What'd you do? Can I ask? I, I know you're interviewing well, me. I, I, used, you would- yeah, I used airline miles to purchase a flight ticket. Okay. So there you go, right? Yeah. So you used a store of value that was different than the greenback to sure. make a purchase. And so if you've used gift cards, right? Your gift card says it's worth a hundred bucks, but is there really a vault at Amazon with all this cash? No, they have a record and they're, you know, they've ascribed value in the form of ones and zeros and put it on that and assigned it to that account number. So we've been dealing with other forms of value transfer for a few decades. Even you, you can go back to traveler checks, American Express traveler check. And so what I think we're seeing with crypto is the greater granularization of value for work. So like in the, an example would be in the current um, exuberance around artwork, where people are taking intellectual property, works of art, then creating a batch of tokens and tying that physical property to those tokens and now telling the world that you can use these tokens as a medium of exchange because it's backed by the value of this artwork. What that means is, is 
it's kind of crazy, but to think about it is that you could have a participant, theoretically, that never transacts in the world of US dollars, yet is completely domiciled in the United States. You could have the, the person who, who maybe never had a job for whatever reason, maybe they're young, like a high school kid, and they take their allowance, and they go and they buy a couple of these NFTs that are worth X because it's backed by a Picasso painting, and then they just use that money for the next year without ever touching greenbacks. It's incredible. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see granularization and representations of value being closer tied to the work. And it is going to be that which, A, increases the overall value of the economy because a ton of work nowadays doesn't get ascribed any value. If the GDP for the planet, meaning like if, if around the world you have, say, $50 trillion in transactions happening globally, what is not in that record are the times where you put your, your stuff out at the curb for pickup. The, the sure. picture your cousin takes of you at the wedding that just looks perfect that you use as your background. The, the book that never gets published. There are tons of intellectual properties, policies and procedures at institutions that are so good, other entities might want to leverage them. Mm-hmm. The, the recognition of value in these works and its quantity are going to dramatically increase the wealth of the entire planet. And, and what we've seen in the past year, Alex, is nothing compared to what we're going to see in the next 10 years. I have a lot of questions about your part of the crypto world and where you guys are going to make a difference. So before we get to those very specific questions, I just want to make sure the listeners understand how the Idea Fund Federal came into fruition and what problem are you guys trying to solve? Sure. So going back to HSBC, uh, I had done a large loan transaction with Citi, and it, it might have been, it was about $700 million. At the time, it was very large. There were never transactions approaching those amounts, but this was mm-hmm. in the waning days. And obviously, it was, I was in charge of it. I was responsible for the, the, on the HSBC side of the soup to nuts, legal negotiation, gathering the pool, working with teams, of course, not all me and great guys and, and, and uh, great men and women that I worked with there. And uh, I get a call from City and they say, okay, the, the wire for the 700 million is going to show up on Thursday. I call my treasury group in Chicago and say, look, there's going to be a $700 million wire showing up on Thursday. And the person taking the call said, that's good. Make sure it doesn't come in after two o'clock. And I said, uh, okay, but why? And they said, well, after two o'clock, that wire is not going to clear until Monday because mm-hmm. it'll be on process Friday and they won't touch it. And I said, well, that's tough. And they go, well, we're going to charge you interest because we're going to have to go get that 700 million in the market to patch the, the hole that we were expecting your wire was going to fill. So we're going to charge you if the wire shows up late. And it wasn't cheap. You know, it was like a quarter of a percentage point on $700 million. And I said, well, okay, I'll make sure it shows up. And not only that, I'll make sure it shows up early. If I can get it in on Wednesday, I'll try to do that. And all I hear is the person on the phone screaming, no, 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 don't have it come early. And I said, why not have it come early? And she goes, well, if it comes in early, we're gonna have to charge you. I'm like, what are you gonna charge me for an early wire for? And they said, well, if we knew the wire was going to be here on Wednesday, that's $700 million we wouldn't have had to borrow in the marketplace. You know, if the wire was here early, you would have saved us the 25 bips or whatever they had to pay in the market for that one day. And I'm like, that's crazy. And she goes, yeah. She goes, so just make sure it comes in between midnight and 2 a.m. on Thursday. So that problem is a microcosm for all these non-bank lenders. So like in the United States, there are about 35,000 non-bank lenders. And I mean, if you go to the dentist and you need a root canal and they say, hey, it's 10 grand, a lot of dentist offices, you can now borrow money on the spot to pay for that procedure. Or if you go to the vet and God forbid your, your pet isn't doing well and, and the treatment could be thousands of dollars, you know, you're at your vet, you can borrow money nowadays to, to do it. Those are non-bank lenders. A lot of times they use a sponsor bank to fall within certain regulations. But at the end of the day, the entity making the loan is not a bank. And there's about 35,000 of these around the country compared to about, I think, 6,000 banks. Fun fact, about 85% of all the assets locked in this country in banking is, is held by the top 
10 to 15 banks. So the top 15 banks hold 85% of the assets and the remaining, what number did I say? I said a couple of uh, 5,000 or so. The remaining 5,000 banks manage the the remaining 15%. And then you have on top of that, another 35,000 non-bank lenders. They all experience payment latency issues where someone sends in a check, a big wire, a giant sale of a bulk sale of loans that they've made. And the wire they expect, even from the government, might show up late, it might show up early. If it shows up early, then it gets swept into a money market account that pays nothing. You know, they pay nothing. The bank is like, thank you, we'll hold your money. We know you're not going to keep it with us long, but we're not going to give you anything for it. But if you're on the other side, Alex, and you need money, you have a covenant. So a lot of these non-bank lenders, they get their financing from a variety of sources. And in the agreements they sign to fund their business, there are strict provisions around how much cash, cash equivalent, and liquid assets they have at any time. And if they fall out of compliance, those agreements are typically wound into every other agreement they have using what are called cross-default provisions. And so just by not having the wire show up on time, they are technically in default on all their agreements, some situation where maybe the entity was already shaky, a, a creditor could look at that cash situation and be like, I'm putting you under, right? This is my opportunity sure. to, crash the, to crash the train. I was just going to ask you, so how does crypto and specifically on federal make this better? What we are allowing non-bank lenders and small banks to do is to not change their process, they will simply have a higher yield money market account with us, and they will also have a line of credit available to them. And so any of these non-bank lenders that have the excess cash can be swept into a money market that actually returns something other than zero. And if they need money right now, if uh, a non-bank lender runs into the situation I described, they have to go borrow off of existing lines of credit that are termed for 45 days or 60 days, meaning they're expensive. And for us, because it is a cash for credit market, they can borrow at much lower rates. And the way crypto works is our system uses the same decentralized ledger technology that's currently being used today across a number of DeFi protocols. Now, if your listeners aren't used to cryptocurrency, they're certainly not going to know what a DeFi protocol is. All I can tell you is that there are billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of lending occurring today using blockchain by users around the globe. For the past year, 18 months, had the crap kicked out of it under attacks, hacks, programming, malicious intent, accidents, you name it. And the making and taking of loans in the crypto space has been audited, vetted, and now is ready for people like me to come in and say, okay, you built an engine for making and taking loans instantly. What elements do I need to add to make it digestible for institutions? What are typical safety concerns that a non-traditional lender or small bank might have about DeFi or crypto, and how how would you address those concerns? So the challenges with DeFi and crypto really stem from, you know, from its birth and its uprising. It's a new technology, right? So it's it's one of these things where any new technology, I I jokingly say it kind of starts in, in like the basement, the kids programming it, and the first people to take it are the criminals that see an advantage in using it. And then you have this sort of you know, step in from both sides to to make it legit. So I I think it has kind of a a halo around it that's fading, that it's really not for, you know, certain folks and that it's only for elements trying to remain anonymous. And it still has that efficacy and there's still that use that it's very good to be anonymous in crypto and transact. It's like cash without you needing to be in the merchant store to actually make the exchange. But Again, the technology, the ability to set two parties in motion to agree to terms, conditions, have that validated, and then have value in exchange for 
an obligation or a right, those basic elements are tremendous. And the speed at which this information transfer can occur makes the economy more efficient. And when you make the economy more efficient, just talk uh, like Mike Cagney from Figure. He makes home equity loans using blockchain technology, and he's able to cut his costs by a third because you, you don't have this process where, A, you have to prove yourself over and over again who you are, and the person you're transacting with doesn't have to pick up that material and, and verify that you are who you are. And then a third party has to come in and say, yeah, you both are who you are both. Okay, now go ahead and transact, and we have to verify mm-hmm. that. Right, right. It's, you can cut so many steps out of the process and increase safety. Where in the world, when in the history of human existence, has a process been discovered that makes something faster and safer? The trains, right? Trains, right? A train is faster and safer than a wagon. The highway system, the internet relative to to paper mail. Mm -hmm. So, So the use of blockchain technology and crypto to perfect financial transactions quickly, it allows our customers to manage cash among themselves without having to worry about a clunky intermediary gumming up the works and forcing the verification of information that nowadays people are like, this is ridiculous. Like, I know who this counterparty is. We're just checking a box at this point. We're able to remove those inefficiencies, get these entities managing their cash amongst each other and doing it in a way that doesn't affect their process. Because I don't know a treasurer alive today that's like, yeah, I want to go buy uh, you know, U.S. stablecoin instead of depositing cash into my bank account. And so, so that's our challenge, is masking the tech in a candy coating that is exact to their work processes today. And it seems you're very big on regulation and compliance. Can you talk about just how murky those waters are in DeFi in general and kind of what you're doing to navigate them? Certainly. So every initialization under the U.S. government has to, at this point, have crafted, is crafting, or is thinking about crafting a policy about how to handle digital assets and cryptocurrency. So uh, coming from a banking background, and then also, like you mentioned, I'd been in Big Four Consulting, a partner in, in, in a top 10 firm. I'm all about not sticking our neck out and never putting our community at risk. We adopted the Disney four keys of safety, courtesy, efficiency, and show. We added one last week, inclusivity, but we live by those principles. So the principle of safety, given our background, requires us to try to stay in lockstep with the actual regulations. Well, the OCC under Brian Brooks, the former OCC director, uh, the OCC is the organization under Treasury that manages all the banks. They came out at the end of last year and said they have failed in providing a better payment transfer system than stablecoins and you know a, a type of cryptocurrency called a stablecoin for those settlements. And it's ironic because our roadmap had that as the key element months before Brian came out and the OCC had published it. So that was great validation for us that, hey, we're on the right path. So as far as the OCC goes, um, our goal is to you know, create safe harbor loans, meaning loans between commercial entities that the government says is okay to do without specific licensure. And once we are outside the safe harbor, because we're getting, you know, doing too much volume or what have you, we then will be using a sponsor bank or we will work with a bank to create a vehicle, a bank owned vehicle that all the paper transacts through. So all of the lending that's happening, all of the crypto, the, the stable coin making and taking of loans between non-bank lenders will be happening in a bank. So it's the difference between this bank using, you know, Microsoft Access databases and SQL servers and Excel spreadsheets to manage their books. And we are using a DeFi protocol core, you know, for our back office system. We do have a token that is out there in the world because we didn't want to build this on our own. Remember when I said back at the beginning, when I needed to learn how to value a mortgage, I found experts and I talked to people yep. and, I, and I deconstructed that. I look at this venture in crypto and blockchain in the exact same way. 
nobody has a monopoly on the right way to do this. And there are some amazing people, Stani Kulchilev in, uh, from Ave and Jason Jones at Centrifuge, Lex Solkin from Consensus, just to name a few. There are tons of these guys who want to educate first and our community by offering a token where people get the token and then start contributing their ideas, we can make our product better because they come to us and say, have you thought about Chainlink? Have you thought about Polkadot? Have you thought about this software? Have you thought about this entity? What are your thoughts on this bank starting its own cryptocurrency? And I tell you, Alex, likely a quarter of my day is reading through what our community has recommended we look at as a complement for safety and for efficiency. The other third is like finding out, okay, let me reach out to that entity what can we do together? How far along they are? And so this, real, this project, beyond making the, the, the cash management and treasury management much more efficient, it's really being built by our token holders. And then those token holders, after the product is launched, get to enjoy in the benefit of having this vehicle out there, which revolutionizes how these entities cash manage. I want to switch gears just for a second because I want to talk about Bitcoin just from your personal opinion. Because, you know, I was at dinner the other night and I was talking to people that have no exposure to crypto and they don't want to get it. They, you know, they associate crypto, which I think a lot of people do with Bitcoin. And they don't understand that there's thousands of other pieces of crypto you could own and the software and the technology behind it and what blockchain is. It's a rabbit hole that they don't want to go down. So they just associate crypto as Bitcoin. Bitcoin isn't DeFi. No. So, so how, can you explain to our listeners, if they admit it, they just assume crypto is Bitcoin and Bitcoin is everything and Bitcoin is a currency. How is DeFi different from Bitcoin? You know, there are lots of really great articles on the history of Bitcoin versus the other protocols. So to, to save your listeners from, from uh, you know, the history of it, suffice sure. to say that you know, Bitcoin is a certain type of asset created using blockchain technology. It is a, I think of it as virtual real estate. So the, the technology behind Bitcoin created a finite piece of virtual real estate, cut, cut it into little pieces, each piece being a Bitcoin, exposed some of those pieces and kept hidden a bunch of others. And when you hear the terms mining for Bitcoin, it's really people using their computers to verify transactions using Bitcoin. And when they verify the transaction or unlock a little piece of that hidden virtual real estate, they get a reward. They get a little bit of a, hey, thank you for verifying the transaction. That's really the, the big idea with blockchain technology is you create a system where the verification of ownership, the verification of identity, the verification of transfer isn't the, the purview uh, or responsibility of a single centralized system. Everybody that owns Bitcoin, everyone that has a node that's mining is verifying all the transactions. And Bitcoin is just one digital representation of virtual real estate that has that kind of functionality. Ethereum, which our base token is based off of, and our system is trending towards being based on entirely, even though we are in discussions with other different protocol designers that have specific experience in banking that we really like, it's all the same. It, 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 is, it is using the technology to decentralize the verification of who owns what and, and who is sending what. That makes sense. And that takes me to talk about the term utility because it comes up a lot in cryptocurrency. Can, can you talk about just what utility means as it relates to crypto and how, how it applies, let's just say specifically to unfederal? Sure. So what's interesting is in doing research, I'm not a lawyer, so you know, don't take my word for it. But uh, <laughs> the, if you look up SEC and utility, Besides a bunch of articles where people are writing about the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, you know, going after people that have issued tokens and measuring the utility, I believe the SEC has only recently used the word utility in one 
article and or or maybe two articles, one in response to Ripple, which is a big company in the mm-hmm. crypto space that that's under some pressure now. So utility is is not a defined term from the government's perspective, but security is. So under you know SEC regulations, if you invest money in in a project that you don't control and a project that you are expecting the benefit to come after the thing's been built and where decision-making is centralized. Again, not a lawyer, but those elements are, are what roughly the SEC would, would consider you then as a security. And if you've participated in that, meaning you've given money and received this interest and all you're doing is waiting for the thing to be built and you're going to get some benefit, the SEC will likely go after that entity, if it's domiciled in the US, and say that was an unregistered securities offering and you need to unwind it, fix it, shut down, do whatever. And so it is the focus of any US domiciled crypto project, blockchain project, including ours, to make sure that we are doing everything we can to demonstrate on a daily basis, no, we are not a security. The people that are acquiring our token today are doing so so that they could vote on our logo. Our logo was decided by democracy. Um, Yeah, the the layout. It's so great. Our user, Zach, uh, did that. We had a meme contest where people put up artwork uh, and there's a guy, uh, a user, shine that light that creates all these amazing pieces of artwork for us. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, because you you have, you have a good following on Twitter and I I was curious, do you have a favorite meme about you? Oh, wow. You know, there's one where it's Walt Disney in an old black and white grainy video where he's, he says something, you know, about any dreams possible. And um, we are, I love the Disney experience. Obviously we adopted their keys, but, but really what it is, Alex, and you can appreciate this. I love going on vacation and not having to worry about the condition of the room, the quality of the food, the, and where the entertainment's going to be. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I don't mind if I have to plan six months in advance to, to go to Florida as if I was going to Europe, to know that I can get off the plane and shut off my brain and have an amazing time. And, and we want to deliver a similar experience to all of our non-bank customers, <laughs> which is not something you see often, right? <laughs> What, what, would, uh, yeah. what do you think? What do you think are some of the hurdles to adopt, uh, adoption? Do you think? Do you think there are legitimate concerns about this? Can you even address some hurdles that are not valid? Maybe do some myth busting for me. Sure, I think myth busting is that essentially there is these you know grand elements behind the scenes that are manipulating and can uh, the the big one was like what if uh, this whole thing was created by a foreign element and tomorrow they shut the whole thing down. Yeah, yeah. Right, from, from our perspective. I.e. Russia, right? That was the rumor. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and then you just kind of tick down the list, right? But yeah. but the, the reality is for our project, I can only speak to our project, is we're using the technology, but it's in isolation of these broader markets. It's like we're using the tech, but we don't rely on the global nature of it per se to operate what we are doing. It is a refined community. It's not as closed as a figure's provenance, which is its own node network. There would certainly be an impact, but the redundancies that we're putting in place, the safety checks we're going into place, the fact that we're actually operating uniquely, the consortiums that, that we are seeing in the space specifically behind stablecoin that involve ex-US regulators and executives. <laughs> what I'm trying to do to demystify the whole process is to relate what we're doing to processes that folks are doing today. So when you deposit money at a Chase or a Wells Fargo, they just have, you know, they have a computer somewhere that's keeping track of that money. And God forbid there's an electromagnetic pulse or the, the cave collapse, you know, good luck. Uh, and I know they have, they have disaster recovery and stuff. Sure. But what we're doing is very similar. We're storing the information also, but we're just storing it in a decentralized manner that is actually immutable. You can't go in and change it after the fact. And if God forbid something happens like an electromagnetic pulse, which wipes out half the nodes keeping track of it, you still have half of the nodes remaining, the process would still exist. So, so our method of banking is actually 
safer than the centralized banking systems that are in place today. Hurdle to adoption. The key there is don't sell the tech, right? My job is not to, to get uh, you, you know, a signature bank or uh, an investor's bank to, to like love crypto and blockchain. That's the last thing I want to do. What I'm trying to, what I'm selling them is what are you earning on your money market accounts today? What is your sweep earning? Oh, nothing. I could beat that. What, when you need money, where do you get it from? Oh, you have to draw from, a, from your, your line. How long does it take to settle? A day. So it means for a day, you are in technical default, meaning someone could come That's in and wild. technically. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm like, gosh, I could do that in three hours. And what are you paying? You're paying 2% because you got to pay for all the bank's overhead and they're going to charge you for that length of time. I'll charge you a point, you know, and, yeah. and, and everyone makes money. So, and the beauty is, is all that benefit better get passed to the consumer in terms of lower costs for them? Because who, who pays the bank's costs today? Consumers. Yeah. yeah, of course. Well, I'm sure you've seen the comparison to the peer-to-peer -peer, in the peer-to-peer -peer lending project, Ave. Is that, is that comparison valid to Unfederal? And can you expand on where or why people might draw some similarities there? Well, the guts of Ave, Cream, DeFi, there's a number of platforms out there that allow for holders of crypto to use their crypto as supply. That user can then go borrow basically against that supply. And Avi's got a really great interface, good customer support. Like I said, huge fan of Stani, just a wholesome individual that lives by core principles. And his system has really attracted a lot of volume. And I think people equate us with Ave simply because our maker-taker technology, our loan technology is similar to what his technology is, but where their focus is on serving the greater crypto community in the, in the supplying of crypto and borrowing against it and, and going into those directions. And I also think how they're tackling some of the B2B lending is different. I, I think the similarity, people just, just see the organizations being credible and, and feel good about transacting. And the fact that we're using the same core technology or similar core technology relates to it. I think where we differ is you, you can't replace our advisor committee that has over 200 years of commercial and resi banking. You know, the fact that we're already talking to some of these GSEs and larger banks uh, that, that we weren't even targeting, mm -hmm. the, the, the fact through our network that folks are saying, when are you going to be ready? We want to start piloting deposits. And also we're a U.S. entity, obviously overseas. You know, if they, if they can't transact in the U.S. market, that's too bad, so sad for the U.S. And it, it opens up the door for us to have a relationship with them later from a balance sheet perspective. Like if we use stablecoin to manage our process and they have the same stablecoin, well, then Stani might be able to unlock that supply to, to back us up and then vice versa, as long as our supply is never at risk and everything is kept KYC'd and open and transparent, we'd be willing to do something with them. Our 200 plus years in banking, our roots in blockchain technology, and our US domicile perspective and goal to be compliant with the US makes us light years different than Ave. Everything else, the experience, the good team, the, the focus on consumer satisfaction are similar. What do you think, Howard, would be stopping banks from trying to build a complete solution around Unfederal? You alluded to this, the, the edges that Unfederal has, but okay, what would be what would stop what what would be stopping banks in general from trying to just build a complete solution around this? Well, certainly they could. Right. In fact, there are some players out there, like Signature Bank has the Signet, which is a crypto asset that they use to settle internal payments. They could use that as the basis for a B2B peer-to-peer -peer lending network and just haven't done it. They might be working on it, but from all, all my intel and experience, they're still a bank. And so they're still thinking of in that kind of centralized siloed mentality. To, you know, to go to decentralized lending is to take away the job of someone that works in centralized lending. But challenger banks and fintechs, we're, we are poised to have some pretty exciting announcement in the next seven to 10 days that uh, involves challenger banks. And this idea that the, the bank today that has five to 20 billion in balance sheet asset, which makes it very small, 
that wants this technology to manage its banking product can certainly look at us and say, hey, on Federal Reserve, would you help design and develop it for us? Uh, and in those cases, we would probably license the tech to them, help them get their dev team in place mm-hmm. and work in that regard. But nothing is stopping anybody. And this is a big risk for people that do go out and buy the, buy the, the e-residual token, that we're trying to build something and, and we are out there in front of the pack on the bleeding edge of finance. And there's a ton of chairs at the table. But that being said, you, we could wake up tomorrow and there could be a company that's like, hey, we solved it and we're doing it. And we're, and we're doing it, you know, in a manner consistent with the way Unfed was doing it. What, what, what do you think the likelihood is that of that, of that ever happening? Um, I think there's, there's a utility curve. So I think the probability of it occurring uh, in six months is greater than the, the ability of it happening in a month. I think our relationship, and I'm, I'm talking about our blood relationship and our close social bond with enough key non-bank lenders exists that even if someone did come up with a solution, A, it's not going to be better than ours. You know, it might be on par, but we have, we, we check all the boxes on, on, from a compliance regulatory, IT and, and workflow perspective and project management perspective. So, so it might be comparable, but we will have in place the system before a, an emergent player shows up and clears the deck. They may take market share because it's coming out of a larger organization that can market, but, but believe me, man, we'll be fine. And when we're done with this first immediate liquidity need pro- product, remember my backgrounds in mortgages and mortgages are the hardest loan to make. A consumer mortgage in the United States is pound for pound the most difficult loan to make. You have collateral with local jurisdiction, you have Main Street borrower, right? You have, you have grandma and the kids that you have to take mm-hmm. care of. You got the banking regs, you got treasury regs, housing and urban development. You have every regulatory body on top of mortgages. And that is where we cut our teeth. So doing some unsecured B2B lending, it's like, it's, it's, it's not a yawn, but it's kind of like, like, duh, you guys know yeah. each other. You have the money, you need the money. I just got to build the pipes. And so by the time exactly. the calendar comes up, we start adding and building product suite, you know, building products onto our suite. And we're aces. Fascinating. Before we, before we wrap up, Howard, people that are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be people that are already token holders or fans of yours personally and are on the unfederal train for the foreseeable future. So I wanted to ask just because I'm sure they're interested to hear, are there any additional updates you can give in regards to recent developments that would be intriguing for people that are, that are already bought into unfederal and what it's trying to achieve? Yeah, certainly. And, and this, uh, what's interesting for the unfederal community is, is, is likely interesting for the, the, the global community at large. Uh, we just dropped a uh, developer update this morning. It's uh, available on our unfederal reserve medium site, uh, our discord channel, telegram, et cetera. And we'll cycle it out through LinkedIn and all the other social media channels. Uh, we've begun alpha testing. So we are starting to send you know, again, it's in this test environment, but we are making and taking crypto loans between individuals. It is anonymous still, but it does involve some very interesting digital assets that we've selected because it is tied to, well, the community feedback. The community has said, we want you to use these. And as is our principal approach, we do that. Um, that testing is starting. We are very close to penning some very interesting relationships, which might actually help us skip some of the the roadmap steps. But either way, we are taking a very measured approach in that. And we are on or ahead of schedule with all our operational and technical milestones. The big caveat is for the folks out there listening is audit, audit, audit. We know safety is our first core principle and we will not release a product that we are not confident in its ability to keep our users' information and transactions safe. That means having multiple audits, and that means, you know, impacts the timelines, potentially, if the audit firms that we retain, and we only want to retain the best, the audit firms that we retain end up taking longer than expected. But save that critical juncture, the development is happening in time. It's really the audit that, that might draw things into question, but that's a good thing. 
because it means we're safer. Well, you were very generous with your time today, Howard. And um, as someone like myself that's new to the crypto world and is trying to get their head around, trying to understand decentralized finance, this was really a great talk. I really enjoyed this. Different from the type of talks that I usually jump in on for the, for the podcast. But congratulations to you and to the entire Unfederal team for everything that you're doing. And um, we really appreciate you spending time with us. And as your journey continues to move forward, and I'm sure lots of great things coming on Federal's way, uh, we'd love to have you back in the future just to do a check-in. And um, so you can update us more about what's going on, not just with Unfederal, but where you see this particular market headed. But thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate your time. Take care. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out our other episodes. You can listen on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe. And for more information, you can visit mill-all.com.